Hi, and welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, uh, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation. My guest today is Agnieszka Leguska. She is the fellow at the Polish Institute of International Affairs and also at Vistula University. She recently got back from a tour of Ukraine. I believe she went uh, to the East meeting with local officials and uh, civilians. Uh, essentially waiting for a war that wasn't, or a war that was not yet. Agnieszka, it's, it's great to have you on. First of all, uh, tell us about your trip, what you saw. One of the things that, that has intrigued me about this crisis is the sort of gaping disconnect between the Ukrainian appraisal of what's going to happen and the Ukrainian, I, I suppose, preparedness for war versus what we're hearing in the West from our media, from our government officials that not only is war happening, it could be quite devastating. I've seen the New York Times report that the latest U.S. intelligence, which has been leaked, suggests urban combat, street fighting, rockets raining down on Kiev. I mean, really a kind of apocalyptic scenario. And yet in Ukraine, unless things have changed in the last three weeks since I was there, there doesn't seem to be this sense of impending doom. Was that your impression based on your trip? Yes, exactly. The same feelings that actually the war is happening more in social media and the investigation in the Western, I mean, Western world, everything, everyone is afraid of war, the third world war in Ukraine. But when you come to Ukraine, everyone is very calm and do not panic, which is on one hand, very good. On the other hand, they are not preparing for war at all. Uh, everyone who uh, I was talking to, they were, were saying that we are on war for eight years. So how it's difficult to say they get used to it already. And exactly when I was like going to the east and if I were closer to closer to the borderline, uh, to the contact line, uh, the calm was even bigger or the panic was less. Even if I was in Kiev, I was more afraid because, you know, the, the, the attack was supposed to happen in Kiev more to, than to Krematorsk or Slovensk when I was going to uh, further. So, yes, uh, in the contact line, the people were not afraid at all. When we were talking to administration people, they were like saying to us, we are ready, we were prepared, we have, you know, documents that they are saying what to do and we are ready. Uh, but when we were talking to activists and we were talking to people, they were like, on the contrary. Right. <laughs> uh, they were saying that uh, we don't know anything from the officials what to do uh, in schools. Children do not have, like, they do not have any like exercises what to do in case of attack or in case of uh, anything even in when we were like talking to activists they were even very surprised that in the new buildings they do not have any kind of shelters how to protect themselves in case right so the, the weird thing is even if they you get used to uh, be in the environment of war, they get lost this eight years of, uh, you know, being close to Russia, to the 
aggressor. So they psychologically, they started to forget about this environment of war. So this is very something that that strikes me when I was there. Yeah. And I mean, it's hard to see if this is just kind of a, a kind of supernatural level of stoicism and fortitude or just naivete and sort of wishful thinking. I mean, I heard arguments in favor of mass mobilization, even from people who who admire President Zelensky's uh, call not to sow panic and hysteria. Uh, they thought that he should be doing more militarily to prepare for a possible invasion. But then again, I hear arguments that, well, if we were to mobilize, that would give the Russians the pretext they're looking for, right? I mean, why would the Ukrainians be? See, it's it's Ukraine is sort of, it's caught in this weird situation where it's got not one, but both arms tied behind its back. It's, its ankles are basically sewn together. It can't walk, it can't move. I mean, anything it does can be seen as a provocation from the Russian side. And anything it doesn't do, it, it almost doesn't matter because provocation is now being invented whole cloth. Just today, there was the Russian military reported that they had to destroy two Ukrainian armored personnel carriers, which apparently crossed into Russian territory. That simply did not happen. They're just making it up now. Uh, so it's not even the Georgia scenario where they they bait you know, the government into firing back. Uh, they're not firing back. They're, they're taking a fusillade of attacks from the, the occupied territories in Donbass, not doing anything, but still being accused of doing everything. We need to understand that Donbass or Donetsk and, and all guys oblast uh, the eastern part of Ukraine is a special part of Ukraine, right? So it's the part of Ukraine where the, the Soviet, uh, let's say, identity is very still living in. In this part of Ukraine, when we were talking to people, Ukraine is very young. Ukraine is very young, meaning that the identity of Ukraine is very young. So one of the guys, he said, only for eight years, we are not afraid talking in Ukrainian, uh, talking that we would like to have Ukraine there. So we need to understand that this identity is very, very young. And also, especially in the older generation, the still Russian propaganda is very crucial. So all the things that uh, that the Europe, the American, the American sentiments are very living there. What strikes me also there that that if uh, something will happen, it's not so, maybe it, it is not very popular. I'm not so sure that Ukrainians in the majority will defend uh, the Ukraine there, exactly in this part of Ukraine. I'm not talking about the army. I'm talking the, the, the social support of, of, the, of the country, uh, because this is the special place of, of the country. I'm not talking about this uh, the Kharkiv the or Mariupol or Krematorsk, because those cities are very, maybe the Ukrainian part of, of maybe pro, more pro-Ukrainian, but Severodonetsk, hmm, I would not be so sure. Right. But one of the things that, that that's sort of struck me as a bit interesting, you know, this choreographed mass evacuation, as Denis Pushilin put it, 
which doesn't seem to have been a mass evacuation at all. Uh, and the people that were evacuated to Russia are pissed off. <laughs> I mean, they, they were told first they're going to Rostov, so they had to get on buses and drive however many hours that was. And then when they got to Rostov, they were told, oh, actually, we're going to take you deeper into the Russian interior. So get on a train for another 10 hours. They're mad. They said there was no reason to leave. We feel aggrieved. We feel, you know, manipulated and used, which indeed they are. I wonder if Putin invades these territories, which it seems now increasingly likely he's going to do. You know, how much more can the population of these territories take before they begin to turn? Meaning before they begin to to resent, you know, their this sort of the Russian yoke or Russian hegemony. I mean, clearly, historically, yes, this area has been much more pro-Moscow in the past than other parts of Ukraine. But that also can be subject to change based on how they're being mistreated, don't you think? It seems like there's a lot of grievances, a lot of frustration coming out of these areas. And we're not really getting that as much in the West. I mean, you know, until, of course, these people leave and they're evacuated in some sham or whatever. But the sociology of the LNR and DNR, I, I just interviewed Peter Pomerantsev on the show who said he's been studying this a lot. We've kind of missed a trick here of the last eight years. These people almost like they're sort of invisible to us. I wonder if, if you think that there's some chance that they might actually change their way of thinking about Russia. I don't think so, unfortunately. Uh, I don't think so because, you know, it's uh, almost the eight years uh, of uh, primary school when there is one generation almost will be when people are going to school they have special ceremonies about the second world war when they are teaching young pupils about how ukrainians are fascists and all the stuff uh, uh, the uh, brainstorm and uh, brainwashing about what uh, the West is how West is bad and how Ukraine is trying to attack. I understand you about this false uh, propaganda about this evacuation and how people are fooled by Russia uh, about this massive attack from Ukraine, but still uh, several thousand people got to these buses and went to Russia because they were afraid of uh, Ukrainian attack. And that brings us to the idea that they still believe uh, in, in this uh, Russia propaganda. What brings us to the idea that not only them are believing this, but also on the Ukrainian part uh, of the territory, still um, Ukrainian Ukrainians believe in this. Uh, partly, of course, not all of them. So it's very hard to say. Those people who were talk we were talking to, they say that one and third still are pro-Ukrainians. So uh, they believe that if they would have a comparison to how the Ukrainians are living, they would have a chance to come back to Ukraine. But the COVID, uh, the pandemic, had a crucial moment for these LN, for the separatists part of Ukraine because you know that during the pandemic separatists closed the boat the, the contact line uh, so they do not have a moment of the contact so they are have they are really blind for this uh, they don't have a ability to to go to Ukraine so they 
they are having like only, I don't know, Zoom contact, but it's not the same thing to have a comparison, to compare what the standard of living with Ukraine. You're pessimistic. So on that note, I want to ask you just how pessimistic you are. I mean, do you see Russia rolling in the tanks? And if, if you do, do you see them stopping in the occupied territories in the east? Or do you foresee a, an attempt to take over all of Ukraine and occupy it militarily? You know, uh, I believe that Russia preferred this role that it has already, meaning that they prefer the role behind the scene to see themselves as uh, protectors, as uh, those who uh, have the double role, being the uh, mediator at the same time, the supporter of the separatists, being protector of the people of the NR and LNR, and at the same time saying that they want them, uh, peace uh, in the world. So this panic over the, the war and this uh, armaments that they're using and, the, and this war, that's the third war, afraid of third war, they use it uh, against uh, Ukraine. And I want to also add one thing, what I've heard on the ground, that they really uh, were very, very upset with the withdrawing American diplomats and this panic after uh, withdrawing American diplomats and, and business because they were they felt that they were abandoned. This is something that we've heard a lot of time that, okay, the, the, the West is uh, leaving us. So uh, that was something we were, you know, where we, we heard for a, a lot of time. So this is something that already Putin uh, a win that Putin won this game because yeah. uh, something uh, what I've heard a lot of time that Putin wants that Ukraine will be lost. I mean that the West will leave uh, Ukraine and Ukraine will not have another way just to uh, again be pushed to the Russian arms. So in the propaganda, they will use it as a, something that can happen that, okay, you see American left you, so you don't have another choice that you, you need to come back to the Russian sphere of influence. So when it comes to war scenario, I think that Russia prefer again and again to use Donbass separatists in the military way uh, to, to use it uh, as an, a military instrument, like maybe like, you know, in a Persia and South Ossetia case on the Ukraine, yeah. from my perspective. And I mean, look, uh, you know, there is a, a school of thought that if Putin puts one boot across the line, if there is a conventional invasion of Ukraine, uh, which already there has been, a right? I mean, the Donbass areas were, it started out as so-called hybrid warfare, but it, it wound up with just conventional warfare. I mean, when the Russians rolled their forces and their hardware in, that's when, you know, the ATO started to, to be pushed back. But there is a school of thinking that says if Putin goes to war again in Ukraine, that's it. It's over for him. Uh, this is This is the country that Russia will choke on. This could lead to major divisions within Russia itself. Ultimately, it could lead to regime change in Moscow. Now, that seems to be a bit 
optimistic, a bit kind of getting ahead of ourselves here, but I understand the logic of it. And I understand why people are, are making this case. I mean, in, in your point of view, these two countries in a weird way, not in the historically revisionist way that Putin has suggested, you know, they are inextricably linked in that this could well be, you know, the war that Putin loses in the long term, that is, and the war that actually undoes his dictatorship. Is, is that something that you credit? Do you, do you th- see that as, as a possibility in the long or short term? Or is that simply the West trying to come up with a rationalization for its fecklessness in, in, in regard to the situation, kind of hoping against hope that, oh, it'll be, an, it'll be a quagmire, right? Okay, it depends, I would say. If uh, Putin would not cross the contact line, if he would stop the intervention in Donbass uh, and then there, I think that Russian people would understand that uh, because he prote- he protects Russian people. I, I mean, although uh, it's not the Russian people, they just have a Russian passport, but nevertheless, he still be a protector of Russian people, right? So he's a, as a protector, they would understand that. And actually, it will be the normal, let's say, like Russian activities at, as uh, since 2000, uh, 10 in Russian military doctrine, there is an article which says that Russia is supposed to do that. But if there will be full-scale aggression in Ukraine with bombing, with uh, like aggression, including bombing Kiev, Kharkiv, or Odessa, that will be a crucial moment for Russian people. Uh, and maybe I'm one of those who do feel that it will be very hard to explain to Russian people how, why exactly right. uh, to fight with the brothers, with, uh, to, to, to fight with brothers. Because exactly what uh, also Putin is saying, that uh, Russians, Ukrainians and Belarusians are one nation, right? Uh, yeah. Exactly, he's uh, several times uh, he wrote an article, several articles, which says that uh, it's one nation, which concludes uh, three three parts. So it will be very difficult. What? Why? This, this is quite interesting because he, since uh, October last year, he's. Um, political support was declining due to, you know, very internal, like, things. So he had crisis legitimacy uh, inside country. But now his uh, support was increasing. And this is interesting why. On one hand, he was, uh, like, uh, showing himself as a protector on one hand, but also as a, someone who was uh, trying to prevent the war which is maybe surprising right. for you when we were uh, we are living in the something different a uh, different uh, story because we are um living in the in the story when we are uh, when putin is trying to make a war but according to russian media the west is trying right. to uh, make a war with Russia. So from Russian media, you he- hear a different story that the West, the United States, is trying to make a war. And the Putin is someone who is trying to stop it. And that's why from Russian per- Russians' perspective, Putin is someone who is 
Timing down the situations, he's trying to protect Russian people from enlargement in NATO and stopping the war. So yeah. the Russians do not want a war. That's the point. So starting a war, starting a bombing Kiev would be, yes, I think it would be a turning point for his position. But what's interesting, too, is that, you know, you know Patrushev keeps he, Ukraine is almost incidental. Uh, Ukraine is sort of the, the, the battle space in which the great confrontation between Russia and really the United States is to take place. So the, the, the way that some at least certain elements within the security apparatus in Moscow are framing it is this is really just about the West. Ukraine is, is a, a, a satrapy of America now. We can't allow that to happen. Defense Minister Shoigu comes up today and says that, uh, well, actually, you know, because Zelensky keeps bringing up the Budapest memorandum, uh, there's a chance that Ukraine could go nuclear. They could develop a dirty bomb. I mean, all of these things that kind of frame it as this sort of existential crisis for Russia, when in fact it's not. <laughs> and as you say, I mean, Putin is, is casting himself as the guy who's trying to prevent a war whilst doing everything that he can in his power to precipitate one. And I wonder, you know, you presumably you're, you're watching Russian state TV, you're seeing kind of the messaging. It really did seem to be more focused at the West and perfidious America and NATO and all of these things rather than attacking the Ukrainian people. But how long does that trick play when you see images, which ordinary Russians will have access to just by dint of having an internet connection of, you know, Kiev on fire, you know, St. Michael's Cathedral burning or, you know, women and children running into bomb shelters in a European capital uh, in the birthplace of essentially the Kievan Rus and, and what Putin considers to be kind of Russia's cultural patrimony. I have yet to hear a convincing uh, explanation of how he gets away with this without having, forget about sanctions, forget about international isolation, denunciations at the United Nations. Internally, I, I don't see how he sells this to the people. You know, it is very difficult, uh, but um, I mean, it is very difficult and tricky question. I understand your point of view, but, uh, you know, according to the opinion pools, uh, Russians do afraid, uh, first of all, the global war. Uh, 63% of them are afraid of global war, not with Ukraine. Uh, like uh, they are, they are, do not imagine that it is possible even. I mean, 40% are afraid of uh, war with Ukraine because it's quite, it's not imaginable uh, for them, but a clash with United States, it is for them imaginable. The, the most important one. They do not understand how it is possible even. And you need to understand that uh, it is borderland. So I do believe that it, if there will be a massive, uh, because it would be the massive uh, uh, war between Ukraine and, and Russia, Ukraine will not be, you know, uh, you know, passive actor with this conflict. So there will not be, you know, uh, only uh, you know few victims on Ukraine uh, on uh, on Russian side. There will be massive also victims on Russian side, and it will be very difficult to hide also Russian soldiers who are dying in, on in Donbas. So nowadays uh, there are also uh, Russian victims, uh, Russian soldiers who are dying in Russia. It's very hided in Russia, people, I mean, Russian soldiers who are dying in Donbass. You don't hear that, right? Uh, and uh, 
either they are paying to the families, to, to, to Russian families, either if uh, they don't want to be silent, there, there are situations that those families are going to psychushka, you know what it, it means, when they are psychos and going to the, you know, hospitals uh, on, on special conditions. So and that would not be the case. So if, if there will be a massive war, that will be dramatic, not only for Ukraine, but also for Russia. And that would be the cost for that. And that's, I'm saying, that would be the turning point for this system also. So that, that is the cost that also needs to be taken into account for Russia, for, for Putin's regime. Let me ask you something as, as a, a citizen of Poland. One of the, obviously, one of the, the kind of themes of the this crisis has been relitigating the end of the Cold War, NATO enlargement, basically every decision taken by not just the United States, but you know, Western Europe after 1989, 90, 1991, as a, a, a you know, kind of a, a triumphalist foreign policy and triumphalist collective security architecture, which is the reason for all of this, right? We have provoked the bear. We have um, we humiliated Russia for too long. Now Russia is a great power in the making again, and it's ready to, to sort of retaliate. I mean, you, you listen to the Siloviki and especially the ones with you know, who kind of came of age in the KGB under the Andropov era. And I mean, this is sort of, they haven't forgotten that sense of humiliation, right? That they lost their empire and that the one thing that their service was designed to do, which is defend the motherland from enemies, both within and without, they failed to do. I mean, Patrushev today sounded very much like an Andropov style Czechist in his presentation. But I wonder, you know, there was a great essay in the Financial Times a few weeks ago by uh, Sergei Plochy, you know, the, the great Ukrainian historian, who really reframes the debate about NATO enlargement. And, and one of the anecdotes he gave, which I didn't know, and I've been sharing this with people who I think were in positions to know, but were actually surprised to hear it, is that Poland was so desperate to get into the alliance that it threatened to develop nuclear weapons unless it was allowed into NATO. That's kind of an interesting sort of data point in reassessing recent history because you know, NATO is fundamentally a defensive organization. NATO is also a way of keeping countries from going to war, right? We can very easily imagine counterfactuals right now in the last eight years if Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania had not been allowed into this alliance, what might be happening within their borders? With respect to little green men and hybrid warfare and you know Russian attempts to create breakaway republics and so on and so forth. How do you see this debate? I think obvious it's very obvious now that Ukraine is not joining NATO in the, the short or midterm, uh, perhaps not even in the long term. But it seems to me that we've kind of in the West done a lot of Putin's work for him by trying to relitigate and reassess the, the very foundation of this organization, what it's designed to do, and more to the point, what it's designed not to do. Give us your opinion of, of sort of, has the West kind of created this crisis by, by being too hubristic and, and, and too um, eager to uh, gobble up former Warsaw Pact countries and, and, and former Soviet Union republics into its uh, security umbrella? 
It's quite funny <laughs> or frustrating that all the time I hear that West is blaming itself for something that Russia is doing all the time. I mean, and I think that uh, Russia is doing quite well uh, its propaganda <laughs> when uh, it's uh, Russia. It's, I mean, that the West is blaming all the time itself uh, for worst thing that Russia is doing. Because, come on, for many years, West has done everything what it could to give a hand for Russia for cooperation. So I do not see any humiliation from uh, NATO side towards Russia, except one thing that Russia is using in its propaganda. Uh, and it used many times uh, forward, I mean, uh, the Kosovo case. That was one event that NATO did uh, in 1991, the, the intervention in Kosovo. And I believe it was a huge mistake. And Russia is using it in, in, in many, many occasions that, to show uh, the West fault. But in any other cases in 2001, 2002, when the West and also United States, every United States administration started with some kind of reset with Russia. And every time I've, I've read or I hear how United States lost Russia, <laughs> every administration in some points wanted to somehow repair relations with Russia and why <laughs> or how they was they were again and again blaming itself that nothing happened and the, the pragmatic relations did not happen or and Russia would was the same and again and again the logic was quite different I mean Russia started to be more and more autocratic regime and became a more frustrated frustrated with the more and more frustrated elite and um, uh, frustrated over the over the democratic democratic let's say rules which means that uh, with the free elections uh, with the free, free people have the and the democratic rules and really what happened in Ukraine what happened in Georgia what happened in Belarus lastly what happened in Kazakhstan that is something that uh, Russian is uh, regime, Putin's regime is afraid of, existentially afraid. And that's why this, you know, deepened alliance, deeper cooperation with China is very crucial because from China, Putin is not afraid of changing the, you know, changing the power. So that's why the West, Americans, Europeans are afraid of, of the model of uh, regime, not the, you know, not the, not the Biden himself, of, but the model of, of the political regime. Existentially, it's, it's the regime is afraid of. And that's why uh, the, this collapse of the, of the, the rivalry is as existentially is uh, as, as a threat for them. Do you think that Russia has prepared itself? I mean, look, this is this has been a sort of surreal set of preliminaries for a war. I mean, certainly the most surreal that I've ever seen in my lifetime. And it seems on the one hand that, look, a decision was taken a while back that we're going to go to war with Ukraine. And yet the preparation for 
furnishing a pretext or preparing the Russian people for it, or even just co- coming up with a kind of coherent explanation as to why was completely abandoned in favor of this sort of, it's like a weird sort of theater of the absurd play from the 1930s, you know, it, it, it's poorly staged managed. People are going off script, you know, Bastrikin basically, you know, flubbed his lines today at the, the security council meeting. It's all very bizarre. And I wonder those who say, oh, actually, there could be a full scale war and occupation. And don't worry, Russia has prepared for it. They have a rainy day fund. They have a good economic relationship with China. They can weather the storm of international sanctions, even if they're full blocking sanctions on the energy sector, the banking sector, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, do you think that that Russia really knows what it's about to get itself into here and that it, it can withstand what's coming? Or is is perhaps Putin just high on his own supply and too believing in his own propaganda to see the forest for the trees? I mean, they are prepared. They, I mean, they were preparing for this the the sanctions, and that's for sure. They were more preparing for for this than we were, unfortunately, because uh, we were deepening our, I mean, European dependence on Russian gas, especially Nord Stream two, when it comes to to Germany and European dependence on energy. They were cutting dependence on our, let's say, financial European dependence, uh, European Russian dependence. But still, uh, it is not possible for them uh, to cut off from SWIFT. Uh, especially China will not help them as fully as they wish they wish for. And it's uh, so obvious that uh, also China, this, this, you know, this so powerful giant, uh, economical giant that they would like to have behind the, their back. Uh, it's not so uh, obvious that, uh, that they will, will, that they will feel, uh, you know, this European uh, budget fund uh, that they are filling their budget. Uh, so uh, it's not so obvious. They will. They are afraid of sanctions that they will be hidden uh, after uh, eventual aggression on Ukraine. So that's why they are so strongly, uh, you know, uh, keen to uh, diplomacy still. Uh, they are, you know, threatening for war again and again, but still quite open for talks, as you can observe. You know, this window for diplomacy never seems to shut. Sure. You know, they've the, the Russians and the Americans have agreed, quote, in principle for a summit between Biden and Putin. But there's been no actual I mean, it's 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 I think the word of, of art is it's notional. It hasn't been agreed to yet. And it would only happen, the Americans say, in the event that Russia doesn't go to war. So, I mean, I, I'm kind of curious as to what the the real strategic calculation is here. I mean, it seems very likely that there will be some kind of invasion in Donbass, given this sort of theatrics today. But is it going to be an invasion that sort of stops so that, you know, there's some kind of attempt at international resolution a la Georgia? Or is it an invasion that kind of presses on until, I don't know. I mean, uh, it does seem like, you know, Putin, again, he has cast himself in the role as kind of the wise and judicious decision maker. Sure. Well, I mean, 
It's uh, I have to say, I mean, again, I've, I've never seen something like this before. You know, I mean, 2014, everyone was taken by surprise in the annexation of Crimea. I remember reading articles in Western broadsheets suggesting that the very thought of, of an invasion and, and takeover of Crimea, it, it, it just it's, it's so outlandish, it would lead to a, quote, civil war inside of Russia. Well, on the contrary, it happened rather from a military standpoint, almost flawlessly, and it bolstered Putin's ratings because Russians were quite happy to regain that peninsula. The war in Donbass, which broke out, was an ungodly mess. I mean, more resembling Somalia than Crimea. And the, you know, the heavy artillery and the, the Russian conventional manpower was brought in basically to clean it up uh, because the so-called separatists couldn't do the job themselves and they were being you know, beaten back by the Ukrainians. And I see this as sort of lingering unfinished business that has taken now eight years to reach its its climax. But again, the the last several days in particular have been a, a rather bizarre. I mean, I think historians are going to be studying this conflict for quite a while. Just what, what the hell has happened? You know, I was telling somebody the other day, I have never consumed as much information in real time and yet come away more confused than I have been in the last week. And I don't know, from your perspective, you're an expert on, on these matters. It seems, what, perhaps more clear or intelligible. You, you don't seem to think that, that war is sort of the end game here. You seem to think it's going to be kind of pressing on for... I think it will be even mess, more messy in the coming, coming days. Yeah. Well, it's great to talk to you and, and great to have your insights from both on the ground and just, you know, having a kind of scholarly background in this subject. It's great to talk to you. Yeah. And please come back on because as this unfolds and it becomes the the mess that you envisage, um, we're going to need all the help we can get to try and make sense okay. of it. Okay. All right. My guest today has been uh, Agnieszka Liguska. She's at the Polish Institute of International Affairs and also Vistula University. She has spent, I think, a week or more in Ukraine visiting Eastern territories near the contact line. And she's offered a pretty concise and fascinating Tracy of the, the current crisis, which is now about to either explode or who knows what. You've been listening to uh, Foreign Office. Welcome to Russia. <laughs> Welcome to Russia, exactly. And now Ukraine. You've been listening to Foreign Office and we will see you next time. Thank you.